It's December 13, 2023. Time for episode 250, 250 in your program of scorecards of the Sports Marketing Podcast. It's your man, Uncle Dub. Hit me up on Instagram and Twitter. It's Uncle Dub, I-T-S-U-N-C-L-E underscore D-U-B. Episode 250, we made it, Mama. Mama, we made it. Top of the mountain, so to speak. We got to get down the hill here to get to episode 300, but that will happen sometime in season five. So we'll come back at you next week with the season finale. We'll recap all the things in sports and we'll do our year in review and our in memoriam as we always do. But let's get to today's episode. So let's take a moment as we sometimes do at the beginning of these episodes. Let's take a nice calming breath in a breath out and let's begin because we got a lot to talk about this episode. Let's start with the NFL, your week 14 Sunday winners, the Buccaneers, the Bengals, the Browns, the Jets, the Ravens get an overtime win 37-31 over the Rams, a 76-yard punt return by Tylan Wallace. That was an amazing run back. I watched the replay and I was like, Whoa. I was like, please let there be no flags. But there were not. That was just a, a, a great ending at home for the Ravens, the Bears, the Saints, the Vikings, 3-0 over the Raiders. Womp, womp. That's the lowest scoring game in the NFL in three years. And, man, wow, was it was it, uh, was it the Twins and the soon-to-be Las Vegas A's? Yeah, that was terrible. Three to nothing. A game devoid of any type of offense from a touchdown standpoint. Your remaining winners, the 49ers, the Bills, they win 20-17 over the Chiefs. The Chiefs had the game-winning touchdown, was called back for offsides, and Patrick Mahomes was hot about that. And, I mean, I saw the replay. It was pretty obvious it was offsides. I mean, how are you mad about that? <laughs> Come on, it was pretty obvious. But anyway, we'll, um, you know, we'll, hey, we, we move on here. Lastly, the Broncos and the Cowboys, 33-13 to over the Eagles, a decisive victory by the Cowboys. So, again, the Cowboys are playing, playing good football, but, I mean, can this translate into the playoffs? That's the question we continue to ask, and it, we'll see once the playoffs get started in a few weeks from now. Monday Night Football, the Giants over the Packers, 24-22. So they won on a walk-off field goal. For the Giants, Tommy DeVito started at quarterback, 21, I'm sorry, 17-21, 158 yards and a touchdown. Saquon Barkley had 20 carries, 86 yards, and rushed for two touchdowns. For the Packers, Jordan Love goes 25 for 39, 218 yards, one touchdown and one interception. For Green Bay, this is their first loss in the month of December since 2019. The Giants are now 5-8. and eight. They go to New Orleans, 1 p.m. on Fox. And the Packers are at home versus Tampa Bay, 1 p.m. on CBS. Hey, don't forget, we had a double dip on Monday Night Football. So that's the first time in a, well, usually they start the season off that way. I don't know. I, I haven't kept track of this, but I don't know if they've done this in the middle of the season ever or in a while. But Titans over Dolphins, 28-27. So Will Levis, um, there was a fumble that occurred on a kind of a miscue with, with a handoff to Derrick Henry. Levis rallies the Titans with two late touchdowns, one on a pass and one on a rush by the aforementioned Derrick Henry. The Titans' defense, man, here's the thing. That Dolphins' offense, we know how potent it is. The Titans' defense held the Dolphins' offense in check. So that was one key piece to this. So that's why we have that close score. Uh, Levis goes 23 for 38, 327 yards, a touchdown and an interception. And Raheem Mostert for the Dolphins, uh, 21 carries, 96 yards, and two touchdowns. The Titans are now 5-8. and eight. 
They they host the Texans 1 p.m. on CBS. The Dolphins are 9-4. They host the Jets 1 p.m. on CBS. Notable games for week 15. So we're getting this out of the way now because, as I said, we're going to wait till next week to do the season finale. Saturday. So we're starting Saturday games for the next two weeks. Then we'll skip the final Sunday of the, of the season. And then starting with the playoffs with the wild cards, we'll get back to Saturday football. On Saturday, a triple header all on NFL Network starting 1 p.m. The Vikings at the Bengals, then 4.30 Steelers at Colts, and then the nightcap 8.15 Broncos at Lions. Sunday, three notable games. Cowboys at Bills, 4.25 on Fox. Ravens at Jaguars, 8.20 on Sunday Night Football, NBC. Monday Night Football, the Eagles. I'm sorry, two games on Sunday. The third game is Monday Night Football. Eagles at Seahawks, 8.15 ABC ESPN. So from coaching news, again, you kind of have to take these things with a grain of salt, but it kind of feels like it's going to go in this direction. Um, the report is New England and Bill Belichick. So I forgot he was also not just the head coach, he was the general manager. Totally forgot that. But there's a report that him and Robert Kraft are kind of working out a parting of the ways at the end of the season. New England is three and ten. So Right now, and you know, and we all know the story that ever since Tom Brady left town, this hasn't been a terribly great New England franchise. Um, now, the big thing with them is the quarterback position. So Mac Jones, well, we know he ain't, he won't it, he ain't it. Um, so what's it, guys? Zebby, Zeb, Zeb. I can't remember the. No, begins with the Z. I can't remember. And I talked about him a couple shows ago. Their quarter, current quarterback. I mean, the question is, is he kind of the potential guy moving forward? Will there be some, um, you know, because New England has an opportunity to pick in the first round, like early first round. I think right now, I think I read something that New England potentially could get the first pick, which could be a quarterback. Um, Their defense is not bad, but it's just the offense generating the points has been the thing. But the one of these reports talked about that because of the defense and how, you know, that it's not terrible, that the plan was was for a transition of Belichick, you know, let's say things were going okay, that Belichick would coach maybe two or three more seasons, and then Gerard Mayo, the defensive coordinator, would succeed him. Now, if this is the case, if that is the plan, then Gerard Mayo could be succeeding him a lot sooner, more sooner than later. But again, these are just reports. Nothing's been confirmed as of yet because these are the same people who are reporting that. And and, and I think these are those troll accounts. Oh, um, uh, Mike Tomlin's getting fired in the season. Uh, I would be surprised if that happened. I mean, now listen, we talked about the fact that uh, Pittsburgh still has what three of their last four are on the road. They're all playing teams that are winning, heading to the playoffs. So Pittsburgh kind of holds their destiny in their own hands. They win these games. Let's say they went on four. They're good to go because they're currently out of that first spot in the AFC wild card. So again, this is not an impossible task. And again, we're talking about a coach in Mike Tomlin who has led this franchise for quite a while, got a Super Bowl win. I mean, again, people are going to say, well, he's lost his touch. Okay, I don't think so. I mean, again, I think the issue, and this is something that we tend to forget, it's not so much the coaching, in it, and that may have something to do with it. They had the issues with the offensive coordinator. They fixed that, but it's still kind of a lingering problem. It's the talent. 
I mean, we always want to look at the head coach. And in many cases, you can put a lot of things that are wrong with teams squarely in the head coach. I get that. But we also forget to look at the front office. If there's a talent gap, if you look at what the team was to what they are because players move on, players retire, fine. But if you look at the talent gap in relation to the rest of the league, then that's also a big indicator where you are. I don't think Pittsburgh's talent is that far off, but if you watch and kind of keep your eye on the NFL, you know that Pittsburgh is, you know, one of those franchises that they're used to winning, they're used to having good talent, and I kind of feel like they aren't bringing them in the talent like they used to. So I think that's kind of the big issue. But again, same folks who are reporting, again, the reports, quote unquote, are coming out and this might happen because this seems like it is, you know, because of the record that the reality of this seems really imminent. But for Tomlin, I think I, I feel good about Pittsburgh's chances to get in the playoffs. I still do because I think Tomlin is the, you know, the, he's the face of the team. He molds the team in his image. They take on his image. They're a tough team. You know, Tomlin doesn't mince words. So I like Pittsburgh's chances. I think they can get it done. But again, it's on them. Like I said, they got to prepare. They got to play. And their destiny is in their own hands. I think they've got a, a good opportunity to kind of get themselves back into the playoff conversation. Let's move over to the NBA. The Lakers win the first in-season tournament, 123-109 over the Pacers. Anthony Davis, man, he just had himself a game, 41 points, 20 rebounds. LeBron James, he's the MVP of the tournament with 24 points, 11 rebounds. So I've said this before, the Lakers, as they go, Anthony Davis goes. If he's healthy, there is nothing that can stop this team. But I kind of feel like anecdotally we can kind of point to that, that as AD has been hurt, the Lakers have struggled. Because, again, what happens, all the weight goes on LeBron James. But now with AD playing with those two, I mean, look at the numbers. They scored 65 points and grabbed 31 rebounds between the two of them. So, again, that's splitting the workload. And then everybody else gets their touches and their opportunities. So I think having AD and LeBron on the court together, I think that really gives the Lakers a really good chance to be a contender in the West. For the Pacers, Tyrese Halliburton, so he had another great game. I mean, again, I said if they had won this thing, I really thought he should have been the MVP. 20 points, 11 rebounds, and off the bench, the uh, rookie Benedict Matherin had 20 points. So then there's all the talk about now they're going to get a championship banner, but the banner will look different than world championship banners to denote that, you know, so moving forward, anybody who wins an in-season tournament will get an in-season tournament banner. I mean, come on. Okay, sure. If they do these, if they do the Commissioner Cup thing in the WNBA, fine, whatever. But then here comes the conversations. Oh, well, LeBron's won another title. Stop it. Please stop. And then the whole... Oh, well, MJ, what, somebody said something about Michael Jordan wouldn't have, um, I don't know, they said Michael Jordan wouldn't have cared about an in-season tournament or something like that. And I'm going, did you not watch The Last Dance or did you not grow up watching Jordan? I mean, and I took it personal. That That's all that needs to be said. <laughs> I mean, the money and the fact that 
Jordan's going to play a game of basketball and you don't think he's going to go hard for this? Come on, man. Stop playing. Just stop. Again, this is another reason why we got to stop talking this goat stuff because it's just out of hand. People make the silliest arguments to advance their side. No one cares. At the end of the day, it doesn't freaking matter. I've said it before. It's all about eras of basketball. Even Jordan himself, go search it. Jordan himself basically said, listen, I can't say I'm the GOAT because, again, you have to think, number one, I played in a different time. You also have to consider the fact that there's Bill Russell, there's Kareem, there's other great players. They had their time. So no one is the GOAT, damn it, for the last freaking time. Let's please stop. No disrespect to LeBron James. The man is an amazing basketball player. That's not the point here. The point here is we got to stop this nitpicking because, you know, we want to make an argument to say that this guy is better than this guy. Can't we just all agree that in their time, each player is amazing? Let's let's try that argument for a change. Um, now, now that this in-season tournament is over, obviously, the NBA is talking about, you know, making tweaks and doing different things to it. Again, I watched some of it. I'm not, again, I wasn't a big fan of it to begin with. Again, why do we need to make a tournament out of the regular season? Isn't the regular season in and of itself a tournament, so to speak? Because every game you play, you're jockeying for what? Position for the playoffs. The higher you are, the more the advantage. Okay? That makes sense, I hope. But they're also advancing. So there, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other things that the NBA will say here's what we're here's what we're proposing all the nba writers will say i'm sure there's been the think pieces already oh this is what we like this is what we didn't like i don't care but here's one proposal that i potential proposal that i read that the winner of the end season tournament should get an automatic bid to the playoffs no (laughs) that's my answer no next question All right, let's move over to college basketball. Let's get to the polls. Let's start with the ladies, the AP top 10 for week six. So get this. The first five weeks in women's college basketball, there's so much upheaval, a lot of upsets, a lot of movement up and down. So that preseason top 20, let's just we always focus on the top 10. That preseason top 10 looked pretty, pretty interesting that, you know, I'm not going back to look at it, but you know all the heavy hitters were there. Then we have all this upheaval. So for the first time, I feel like we've got some stability in the top 10. This week, the entire top 10 held position. Will that happen again this season? Mm, Probably not because some of these teams in the next few weeks, because right now college basketball is in a weird time. So they started a few weeks ago. So six weeks ago, they started. Now, most of these schools are at exam break. They're going to kind of start playing again probably over the weekend over the next couple weeks and then getting into conference play. Once conference play happens, you know somebody's going to get upset. So we can kind of appreciate the fact that the top 10 did not change. Let's run through it here for week six. South Carolina still number one, 36 first place votes, followed by two UCLA, three NC State, four Iowa, five Texas. Six through 10, UCLA, LSU 7, Colorado 8, Stanford 9, Baylor 10. Now, outside of the top 10, a lot of movement. Your movers this week, UNLV, 
Highest mover this week. They're up three spots to 23. Florida State drops two spots to 22. Into the poll this week, UNLV, as we mentioned, and Miami comes in at number 24. Out this week, Washington State and Penn State. Number 26, your top vote getter for the week are the Washington Huskies. On the men's side, so the men, a little bit more happening here. We'll go through it. Number one, Arizona, 62 first place votes. They hold the position. Kansas holds a two. Purdue up one to three. Houston, one first place vote, down one to four. And UConn holds at five. Six through 10, Baylor holds seven. Marquette up a spot. Creighton up two spots to eight. UNC holds nine. And Gonzaga drops three spots to 10. Your movers this week, Clemson up 11 spots to number 13. The Clemson Tigers, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I've talked about Clemson uh, last season and how, number one, they're really moving in the right direction. Brad Brownell's been coaching that squad for a while. Clemson, as I've said, here's your weird Jeopardy fact that we'll repeat. Clemson, an original member of the ACC, has never, not one time, won the ACC tournament. Let that let that marinate for a second. Now, Clemson has been playing really good over the last few seasons. It's just a matter of them getting to March and finishing the job because Brad Brownell's been bringing in some talent, and now they're up to number 13 in the poll. Down nine this week is Miami at 24. We'll talk a little bit a little bit about, about Miami in a moment. Into the poll this week, Virginia's back in the poll at number 22. Northwestern is in at 25. Out of the poll this week, Texas A&M and San Diego State. And your top vote getter this week is the are the Buffaloes of Colorado. Let's go to the recap of the week from the ladies' side. From the Hall of Fame Women's Showcase, number two, UCLA over number 20, Florida State, 95-78. Now, mind you, as we recap the week, these are last week's rankings, just to remind you. Um, number one, South Carolina over number 11, Utah, 78 69 in that game Alyssa Pilly I, I had to look her up I, I you know been watching her play over the last couple of years where she transferred from USC to Utah and she's really helped turn that program around but man watching her play against South Carolina my goodness her footwork is immaculate I mean she knows positions she can get angles drives to the basket and she's 6'2 she doesn't look it but she's 6'2 Got a nice sweet stroke from the outside. Alyssa Pillar got the dog in her, man. Let me tell you, um, really, really great, fascinating to watch. Utah, again, you got Utah, you got Colorado, you got Stanford. Those three teams are the teams you should be watching in the Pac-12. Oregon, as we know, I don't know what's happening to them. Oregon has gone to the dogs. Arizona, not ranked this year. They get a they got a big matchup coming up uh, against Texas. I believe that game is tonight. I'll check on that, but. Um, yeah, I mean, Utah is going to be something to, something to deal with in the Pac-12 as we say goodbye to Pac-12 women's basketball this season. Um, lastly, from the, from the women's showcase, number 17, UConn over number 24, UNC, 76-64. One upset, we mentioned Washington and Washington State, so two programs going in opposite directions in the poll. Washington took down then 21, Washington State, 60 to 55. Washington, when I saw the first half score, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. Washington was up by 20, 37 to 17 at the half. Washington State wins the second half, 38-23, but they fall by five. Hannah Steins had 21 for the Huskies. Bella Miracatete, 19 points for Washington State. Let's get into the men's, actually do news and notes from, from women's college basketball. News and notes. 
Uh, Kateri Poole, 5'8", junior guard from LSU, per head coach Kim Mulkey, is no longer with the team. So Poole started last season, but this year she only played four games. She played two years at Ohio State before transferring to LSU. Um, So now they're short her, and unfortunately, they're short sophomore Samaya Smith. She was hurt during the Cayman Islands Islands, uh, Challenge uh, with a knee injury, so she's going to miss the remainder of the season. Uh, Let's move over to the men's side here. From Saturday, Utah over then 14th-ranked BYU, 73-69. Washington over number seven, Gonzaga, 78-73. So the reason for their drop. On Sunday, Colorado, 90-63 over Miami. Listen, we talked about Duke a few shows ago. Miami is another team. So remember, Final Four last year, another team that people felt were going to be tops class in the ACC. Have we overvalued Duke and Miami a little bit? I don't know. Again, it's still early. I mean, Duke is rebounding well as far as from their losses, not physically rebounding, but from their losses. So now the question is, in these final games in the non-conference, what pieces have to come together for Duke to kind of reestablish themselves as a potential team to win the ACC? Now, Now, again, I'm not counting Duke out. Not right now. Not yet. Miami, I'm not totally counting them out. But I feel like either it's those early season, those uh, non-conference kind of jitters or just, you know, a lot of things happen in the non-conference. You make adjustments. You change some things. Teams play you a little differently. But once we get to the ACC, so again, Duke, definitely somebody you should not count out in the ACC, at least not right away. Miami, Virginia, North Carolina. Then there's everybody else. Now, Georgia Tech might be a little sneaky here. So Georgia Tech's already got a conference win, and they I think they beat Duke. So, you know, Damon Stoudemire, he's right now, until we get into really maybe half, maybe about a third of the way to halfway through the ACC season, Damon Stoudemire might want to, Pencil him in as our early favorite for ACC Coach of the Year right now. But again, that's a team that potentially could kind of mess up the party. But you still got the usual suspects, Duke, North Carolina, Virginia, Miami, and then there's everybody else uh, in the conference. Um, also from the men, ah, news and notes for the men. So Bronny James, when we talked about Bronny James uh, last show, he made his college debut on Sunday. So to a rousing applause at the Galen Center at UNC, uh, USC, four points, three rebounds, two assists, one, uh, two steals, one block in 16 minutes. He's on a minutes restriction, but he filled every part of the score sheet, had a block where somebody, I saw the, uh, the video and somebody said, just like his daddy, I mean, he ran down the court, tracked the guy, Got a great block, uh, got the one block that he got. So, um, you know, again, very happy for that young man. Hopefully as the season progresses, he'll, you know, kind of you'll get his legs under him. He'll get more playing time and, you know, it, it'll just, you know, it'll keep coming together for him. But again, it's a debut. So him and Juju Watkins were the two big names that were coming on campus at USC that people were extremely excited about. And the excitement obviously is still there. Just excited for him that he's 
just got that opportunity again to play basketball and his dad was there. So again, he was extremely proud. And of course you should be considering, you know, all the things that have happened and that he was able to come back from it. So, you know, shout out to him and and just, just best wishes to him moving forward for the rest of the season for him and for uh, the USC Trojans. Um, <clears throat> finally in men's news, we say rest in peace to Paul Webb. Uh, former head basketball coach at my alma mater, Old Dominion University, passed away a few days ago at the age of 94. So he coached the team for 10 years from 1975 to 1985. So at that time, ODU made the move to Division One after his first season. So Paul Webb took ODU to the NCAAs five times and to the NIT three times. And in the NIT tournament, they had three upsets. I think one of them was then number one, DePaul. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, DePaul University at one time had a phenomenal basketball program. Go look it up on YouTube. You'll be amazed, but good times for them. Um, ODU, so kind of going back to their basketball history, they won the 1975 Division II title and uh, the next year, they returned to the Final Four in Paul Webb's first year. The following season, they moved to Division One, and in that first year, they went twenty-five and four. They lost in the ECAC championship game to Syracuse. So ECAC back in the day, and because the NCAA at that time was, I think, either thirty-two or sixteen teams. I think it was thirty-two teams at the time. They missed the tournament that year, but. Since then, during that 10-year period, five times to the tournament, um, and then I feel like after Paul Webb retired, so he retired in 1985, at that time he had 511 victories, which made him fifth all-time in basketball. As we know, 500 wins nowadays is not a lot, but again, a phenomenal accomplishment for uh, Coach Webb. Um, he got 196 of those victories at Old Dominion. But when you think about ODU basketball, if you're from Norfolk, if you're an alum, you know, I remember those days. Paul Webb was synonymous with ODU basketball. It still is synonymous, synonymous bleh, with, with the program. And I feel like, you know, his work built such a great foundation because 85 on, there were so many great players, great players that played for Coach Webb. So many more great players came to ODU. Such great uh, success in the tournament. I remember we beat Villanova one year, uh, you know, one of my <laughs> college buddies. <laughs> so from the Philadelphia area, major Villanova fan. Shout out to my, my girl Randy. But uh, yeah, I'm sure that was a, that was definitely a tough one. But for you, I mean, very divided at that point but um again Paul Webb built such a great foundation of ODU basketball and he'll be missed and rest in peace to him and and uh condolences to uh, the ODU basketball family and to his family when we return we'll get into more of the show so we got some baseball we got some more basketball to talk about we'll get into WNBA we'll talk women's hall of fame and then, of course, we got to get into college football. So much college football to talk about. Transfer portal, Heisman, Army-Navy was amazing. Um, always comes down to the end for these two bitter rivals. But, again, it was great to see such a great game played in New England. And I don't know if it's going to be there next year. But, again, I'm excited to see what happens uh, when these two teams meet for the 125th time. Stay tuned.
All right, everybody, welcome back. Let's get to the WNBA. So the draft lottery, the Indiana Fever for the second straight year will have the top pick. They win the draft lottery this year. So two, three, four would be the Sparks at two, the Mercury at three, and the Storm at four. So right now, the current lottery draft lottery, I'm sorry, the current draft projections are Caitlin Clark will go one. So here's the little wrinkle to that. Caitlin Clark still has one more year eligibility. So she still has, due to the COVID waiver, she can come back to college for one more season. So as you remember from last year, once a player season ends, they have, I believe, 24 hours to 24 to 48 hours after the season ends to declare for the draft. So that's kind of be the big question. A um, couple other things with Clark. As we and we didn't talk about this, but I did hear this. Clark became the only member. I think this is last week. The only member men's or women's basketball to be a member of the 3,750-750 club. That's 3,000 points. She currently has 3,041 points, 750 rebounds, and 750 assists. She is currently 486 points behind Kelsey Plum, who has currently still has the scoring record in NCAA. So you got to think that this season she has a pretty good chance to get closer, obviously, to Kelsey Plum, potentially breaking the record next season if she stays. If Clark opts for the draft, she could be the sixth guard and the uh, the sixth guard in the last eight drafts to go number one. So the last one was Kelsey Plum in 2017, and we all know what Kelsey has accomplished uh, in the WNBA. The Fever, they last won the WNBA title in 2012. The last playoff appearance was in 2016. So they got Aaliyah Boston last year, fell a little short, didn't quite have a great season, but the progress is there. They're coming along fairly nicely, but having a number one pick again would definitely lend them to getting closer to finally getting back in the playoffs. And as we have talked about with the fever, getting back into the, into the conversation, the fever has had great players. They've got a WNBA title. So I don't think they're terribly far off. It's just, again, trying to close as we talked about that talent gap that we talked about earlier in the, in the NFL uh, segment. Um, so the rest of the draft uh, order, the wings at five, the mystic six, Lynx seven, the dream at eight, the wings will get another pick at nine, the sun at 10, Liberty 11, and the sparks will pick again at number 12. So, um, the, the, it's, it's mock draft season, ladies and gentlemen. So essentially there are going to be 10,000 organizations that are going to tell you who's going to be, uh, your top, uh, 12 players or what have you in the draft. So we'll kind of keep an eye on it, but I feel like doing it right now is still kind of early because the college season is really taking shape and we're going to see some players, their stock is going to rise tremendously. So there are a lot of players we're not talking about right now, but there's always that one player that sometime around conference tournament time going into the NCAAs, they're going to have a breakout performance and they're going to push their way possibly into that top 12 and maybe even the top five of the draft. There's always that one sneaky surprise when it comes to the WNBA draft. So uh, we'll kind of do some mock draft stuff uh, as the season progresses here uh, in women's college basketball. The Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, the 2024 class has been announced. Let's go through the inductees. 
starting off with, you know the name, Maya Moore. I mean, what can you say about Maya Moore? Everything. Four-time WNBA champ. A two-time unanimous National Player of the Year. Won the Wade Trophy three times. I believe she's one of... I forget. I, this this number's in my head. I feel like she's one of maybe two players or three players that's won the Wade Trophy more than once. Four-time All-American, two-time NCAA champ. So she went 100 and, 150 and four was her record. And at one point during her career, UConn went on a 90 and 0 streak. She is one of 10 players to have a WNBA title, an Olympic gold, an NCAA title, and a FIBA gold medal. So the 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 resume speaks resoundingly for itself for Maya Moore. Simone Augustus, so her teammate in Minnesota, four-time WNBA champ, two-time All-American at LSU, two-time National Player of the Year, three times to the Final Four. In her four years at LSU, her teams won 121 and 19, and she has three Olympic gold medals. The other uh, inductees, Violet Palmer, she's a 20-year basketball official. She spent nine years in the college game. She refereed five Final Fours and two national championship games. In 1997, she became the first woman to officiate an NBA game and went on to officiate 700 regular season games. She also officiated in the first season of the WNBA and the 1997 championship game. Sue Phillips. 31 years as the head coach at Archbishop Mitty in San Jose. She's gone 789 and 138, has won 62, 62 titles, six state, one national, and multiple California state section titles. She's a six-time gold medal winner with USA Basketball. And in 2018, she won the Naismith and WBCA Coach of the Year. So she's had numerous um, alumni from Archbishop Mitty that she coached most notably and most recent is Haley Jones, currently of the Atlanta Dream. Mary Scoville, two-time head coach at Gulf, Gulf Coast State College. So she coached there from 1996 to 2012 and again from 2014 to 2022. In those two stints, 646 and 91, she won 90, 90 straight games from 2000 to 2004. She's a six-time National Junior College uh, Athletic Association National Champion and a six-time NJCAA Coach of the Year. Rita Gale Easterling played in the Women's Professional Basketball League from 1978 to 1981. She is top five in league assists and played on the U.S. Pan American Games team in 1975 that won the championship. Lastly, and certainly not least, Taj McWilliams Franklin played three years in the ABL and then went on to play 16 years in the WNBA. She won a WNBA championship in Detroit. She is a six-time WNBA All-Star and was the 1993 NAIA Player of the Year at St. Edwards University. So the induction ceremony for these more than deserving inductees will be on April 27th, 2024. And I believe the Hall of Fame is in... um, uh, blah Rocky Top, um, Knoxville, <laughs> Knoxville, Tennessee. Not that's we know the name is not Rocky Top, but anyway. All right, let's move over to Major League Baseball. So some trades here and some pickups. So Juan Soto was traded from San Diego to the Yankees. So it's a multi-player swap here. So for Soto, this is the second time he's been traded in 17 months, and. For the Yankees, it gives them a lot of versatility. So they've got several guys 
who can play the outfield position, you know, a mix of left and right-handed hitters. And again, we can mix up these players to bat left, bat right, to face different types of pitching, but also they have versatility defensively. So again, you know, you can make the argument that, you know, the Yankees need more than hitters. They need more than bats. But one of the things that the Yankees have been dealing with is staying healthy. I think that with their bats, if they stay healthy, I think all the pieces will eventually come together. But when you're missing time, you got to reincorporate guys into the lineup when you got to change up the lineup. And, you know, you're going to change the lineup every now and then. You want to give somebody a rest if you have the bench to do so. But if you have to bring in guys or switch positions, maybe someone goes to a position they don't naturally play that's kind of where you get the issue. The batting order can kind of stay the same depending upon the pitching, but I feel like having healthy bats, having healthy guys going for that long 162-game schedule, which I still think is too long to play baseball, I think that's kind of where they can kind of gain the advantage in that way. The big name here. We had Otani watch. Shohei Otani finally made his decision. He is going to Los Angeles. So he ain't going very far. He's going to the Dodgers. He gets a $700 million 10-year deal. And what happened here, a day after the deal was announced, the Dodgers announced that he will defer $68 million of his $70 million salary to reduce the Dodgers' payroll, reduce the team tax burden, and to help sign other players. So Otani now becomes the fourth reigning MVP to change teams in the offseason and the second to do so as a free agent. So for the Dodgers, he's expected to DH. And um, now with him in the lineup, it's like the Dodgers have become, again, I think their odds went from plus 800 to plus 500. Again, you tell me what that means. I, I don't I only been on the horses, but. It seems like their odds to win the World Series have gotten better. Let's just keep it. Let's just keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Let's just do that. Now, here's another name here: Yoshinobu Yamamoto. He's a right hand, right hand pitcher, free agent. He's the best pitcher in Japan right now. Estimates are saying that he could get a two hundred million dollar deal, roughly about thirty million a year, if he signs with a major league baseball team. So. Six teams are looking at him, are in the running. The Mets and the Yankees. Now, you know, (laughs) if the Mets and the Yankees are trying to get this guy, there's going to be some animosity if he lands in New York on one of those teams. So if he goes to Queens, Yankees fans are going to be hot. If he goes to the Bronx, Mets fans are going to be hot. So there's there you go. Um, the Cubs, which the Cubs seem like they were in the running for Otani, but and they were making the moves from a money standpoint to get him. But I, the more I thought about that, I don't know what the draw would have been because, again, Chicago's trying to get back on the horse. Chicago is not far off from – I mean, remember, Chicago was in the playoffs and they lost some games down the stretch and that totally knocked them out of contention. Also, the Red Sox. Oh, so there's that Red Sox-Yankees thing, man. <laughs> now, if the Red Sox get them, Yankees fans going to be super hot. Um, the Giants and the Blue Jays. So all these teams are 
they've I, and I know I read a report a couple weeks ago or a week or two where you know Yankees officials were flying to Japan to watch this guy play, but all six of these teams seem to have a vested interest in bringing Yamamoto to their franchise. But again, he could get two hundred million, so. Not a terrible deal for a guy who is considered, as we said, the best pitcher in Japan. But yeah, this is gonna this this just got more fun now that we know where Otani's going. Now, what's gonna happen for these six teams, knowing that they potentially have, and that's the other thing, they potentially have the ability from a money standpoint to bring him in to offer him that kind of money. Now, who's going to get him? So we'll keep an eye. So now we got Yamamoto watch. So we'll uh, keep up with where he may end up if he signs here in MLB. All right. From there, let's move on to college football. Oh, boy. We got some good stuff happening here. So let's recap. Army over Navy, 17 to 11 and the 124th meeting. So as we said, simple. Army wins. They get the CIC, the Commander in Chiefs trophy. So they did it. They get their sixth win in eight tries over Navy. They bring home the Commander-in-Chief trophy. I want to say this is like the 19th. Well, I think they won more than 20 times. Anyway, so they get it again. And, you know, you know how this works. They got to sing second. Hey, that's the goal. And bragging rights for 360-some-odd days now. So, again, the clock is reset. Navy gets the stew. Army. Navy gets to stew, Army gets to celebrate, and there you go. So let's look at the, the, the recap here. Bryson Daly, Army quarterback, 84 yards rushing, and he threw a touchdown pass. Now, again, you say, hey, he's a quarterback. He's, just, he's supposed to throw a touchdown pass. But this is the first time that Army has thrown a touchdown pass versus Navy since 2015. Tells you a lot about the teams, right? They're very run-heavy teams, as you know. So Navy quarterback Ty Levitai, he came off the bench. Uh, he replaced then quarterback Xavier, the thing is Xavier Airline. He had 74 yards rushing. He goes 16 for 26 and throws for 176 yards. That is the most yardage for a Navy quarterback versus Army since 2010. So wasn't quite. I, I knew there was going to be some passing in this game, I, and I was thinking more so on fourth down situations, but <laughs> did not expect that there would be um, this kind of passing and setting these marks that hadn't been set in seven to 10 years, which is kind of crazy. But Army had a 14-point lead, and Navy comes storming back. So the game was 17-0. I'm sorry, um, 10-3. Fourth quarter, sophomore linebacker for Army, Kayla Fortner, so first of all, I'd look up his class. I'm going, this guy's got to be a senior or something. He's only a sophomore. So number one, shout out to that man. He had a game. In the fourth quarter, he had a strip sack of Ty Levitai, scoop and score. The game is now two touchdowns, 17-3. Navy gets the ball back, scores a touchdown to make it 17-9. Two-point conversion fails. So now, Army, Navy gets the ball back. Army. He, for Fortner, he makes an open field tackle on Levitai, stopping him on the one-inch line, and then the Army defense did the rest of the work. Levitai goes for a quarterback sneak. They stonewall him at the one-inch one line. Army gets the ball back on downs and to run the clock out. They gave Navy a safety, 17-11. 
it was an amazing game. But but again, this is typical. Um, Army head coach Jeff Monken, when interviewed in the post game, was just like, "Isn't this how it always is?" He goes, "Why is why does it have to be like that?" Were his, were his exact words? It's like we got a two touchdown lead. Here comes Army. Now we got to fight to win this thing. And of course, I don't think it would be Army Navy unless somebody comes back and made this an interesting game. So again, another, I think this game could be considered another classic, not quite like the snow classic a few years ago, but definitely one of those games that people will talk about for a, a while now. So army finished the season at six and six. I don't know, or don't think if they're going to be in a bowl or not at this point, I think all the bowl games have been uh, set Navy finished the season at five and seven under first year head coach Brian Newberry. So we'll kind of, you know, get back to talking about the Heisman Trophy was awarded on Saturday night, the 89th edition. Jaden Daniels wins. He's the third winner from LSU, second quarterback. And this is the fifth time in seven years a transfer quarterback wins the award. So the numbers, he had over 3,500 yards passing and 1,000 yards rushing. He's the second California native to win the last in the last three years. So Bryce Young won it in 2021. So 50 seems to be the magic number. He had 40 passing touchdowns and 10 rush touchdowns. He is the fifth SEC player to achieve these numbers. So let's listen to the names here. So Bryce Young, uh, Joe Burrow, Cam Newton, and Tim Tebow. What do they all have in common? They all have a Heisman Trophy. So it seems like if you get that that number 50, not saying it's a guarantee, but it seems like that 50 touchdowns, that ratio of so many pass and so many rushing touchdowns tends to be the magic number to get you the Heisman. So for his career, Daniels has over 12,000 pass yards and over 3,000 rushing yards. The voting breakdown, Jaden Daniels had 2,029 votes, finishing second, Michael Penix Jr. with 1,701 votes. So the difference was about 328 points. This is the closest vote since 2018 when Kyler Murray one with 2,167 votes over Tua Tagovailoa, who had 1,871 votes. Finishing third, Bo Nix with 885 votes. Marvin Harrison Jr., 352 votes. And Jordan Travis from Florida State finishes with 85 votes. This is the first time someone has won the Heisman since 2016 that, that is not playing for a national title. So congratulations to Jaden Daniel, Daniels. And... When we did our, when I did the Heisman uh, look at the candidates last week, I said that if you think about what he's accomplished, so again, it's not so much the passing yards, but he was very versatile in the way in which he scored. So not just the pass, but the rush. So again, 40 passing touchdowns, that's great, but having 10 rush touchdowns and having that combination of over 3,500 passing yards and 1,000 yards rushing, that was, I think, the thing that set him apart from the other candidates. No disrespect to them. All of them had great seasons, but I think Jaden Daniels was, number one, the most deserving candidate. And secondly, if you think about it, for once they decided not to go with somebody who was playing for a national title. They overlooked that to give the award to the most deserving candidate. So kind of got to give some kudos to the Heisman voters on that this year. Let's move over to Transfer Portal. So some updates here. So we got two updates or three updates. The first one, DJ Uwe Ungalale, he is visiting Florida State in the coming days. So since he hit the portal, he's been in contact with Florida State, Mississippi State, Louisville. Um, they said that some coaches from Ohio, Ohio State reached out to coaches at Oregon State. He hasn't had any conversations with anyone from Ohio State, but right now 
Florida State is where he's going. And that's interesting because he could potentially be the guy at Florida State. You know, so again, you got two quarterbacks who have what at least one start for Florida State in Jordan Travis's absence. DJ could step in and be the guy. So again, there would obviously be a a competition in spring spring ball, but with his experience and also who he would be back in the ACC and he'd probably have to go up against his old team in Clemson. Um, this definitely will give Florida State um, some help in the quarterback department. Now, the question is, would he if put it this way with a good offensive line in front of him? DJ can pass the football. So we saw that this year with him at Oregon State. So if that offensive line is doing their job, DJ is dangerous. So that could potentially be a a good fit for the Seminoles. Tyler Van Dyke, he leaves Miami. He is now headed to Wisconsin. So for Van Dyke, this will be his fourth offensive coordinator in his college career. He played last year in the air raid system under offensive coordinator Shannon Dawson. So he's just going to Phil Longo's air raid system at Wisconsin. He has one year of eligibility remaining. Riley Leonard, as expected, he's going to make the jump to Notre Dame. So he leaves Duke. So interesting. Uh, last year, it was what? Um uh, Sam Hartman leaving Wake Forest. So there's that tobacco road connection. So he leaves Wake Forest. It goes to Notre Dame. Sam Hartman's out of here. He's more likely head to the pros. So the ACC, the Notre Dame pipeline is alive and well. Um, there's an interesting connection here that Riley Leonard's great grandfather graduated from Notre Dame in 1940 and played on the Irish football team. Riley Leonard has one year of eligibility remaining. So we know what he can do, but there's a key question here for Notre Dame. Who will he throw the ball to? So Notre Dame's wide receiver core hasn't been very good over the last few years uh, under Marcus Freeman. Um, They recently, if it's not this season or last season, they recently fired their wide receivers coach. Um, They've seen a mass exit. So Chris Tyree is on his way to UVA. Um, So, Um, if Riley Leonard gets some good targets, and I know that I think Notre Dame is looking at some wide receivers in the transfer portal. So if they can bring in some quality guys and knowing what Riley Leonard can do, his skill set, if he can get some good targets, I think Riley Leonard will have some success. I mean, he definitely will have success in Notre Dame, but it's all going to be predicated on the passing game. Can they make the passing game work? making that connection with the wide receivers. If he can get some speedsters, some guys that can make plays with their legs, then he can get on the ball. Uh, Riley Leonard will be just fine at Notre Dame. So that's kind of the update on the transfer portal. Let's move over to the second round. So our part two of our bowl picks. So 11 more games. So total, I'm picking 22 bowl games. So in this section of the bowl picks, I'll be picking the CFP semifinals. So we start now for this second half, Thursday, December 28th. We got two games starting 545 on ESPN and ESPN Plus. Number 18, NC State versus number 25, Kansas State and the Pop-Tarts Bowl from Orlando, the Pop-Tarts Bowl. Ladies and gentlemen, so let me guess. If you win, (laughs) go with me here. You're going to get showered with Pop-Tarts. Doesn't sound terrible, but sounds terrible at the same time. 
Kansas State are three-point favorites. I'm going to go with K-State here. Um, State has had a lot of kind of instability at quarterback. I felt I felt like and have been feeling that State's defense, State's got a decent defense, but I feel like K-State, I think, can make some, some headway against NC State. Um, State's been up and down this season. I'm going to take the Wildcats over the Wolfpack. 9:15 ESPN and also ESPN Plus. The Valero Alamo Bowl from San Antonio, number 14 Arizona, at three-point favorites, take on 12th-ranked Oklahoma. I like this game close. I'll take Arizona over Oklahoma close in the Alamo Bowl. Let's move to Friday, December 29th. We start noon ESPN and of course the Plus. Tax Slayer Gator Bowl from Jacksonville, number 22 Clemson versus Kentucky. I'll take Clemson close over Kentucky. This game, I think, is push. Um, I am liking I have bought in and liked Kentucky for a while. I picked some Kentucky games. They lost some games. I felt I was good about picking them. Clemson has kind of picked it up. You know, this isn't a Clemson-like season. I mean, they they have a winning season, but it's not Clemson-like. Like, okay, we're playing in New Year's Six or we're in the CFP. Not a Clemson-like season for the Tigers. But I like Clemson's chances. I'll take Clemson over Kentucky in the Gator Bowl. 2 p.m. CBS. Speaking of Notre Dame, the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl from El Paso. Number 19, Oregon State takes on number 16, Notre Dame. Notre Dame are six and a half point favorites. I'll take the Irish new head coach for Oregon State. They're going to have to make a change of quarterback. Notre Dame will be missing some pieces. Um, You know what? Sam Hartman, I believe, has opted out of, opted out of the bowl. We we know he's going pro. He said he's opted out to prepare for the NFL draft. So with that, I still kind of like, well, hmm. Now I'm looking at this again. So Oregon State, I think their defense is a little underrated. Notre Dame, six and a half. I'm still going to go with Notre Dame. I'll take it close. I'll take Notre Dame close against Oregon State. So we'll mark that as a close, but I'll take them close here. So we'll mark that. All right. Uh, 3.30 ESPN, AutoZone Liberty Bowl from Memphis, if I believe. Memphis will be at home versus Iowa State, who are at 8.5. I'll take Iowa State at 8.5. Iowa State, um, I remember watching them playing BYU, and it didn't help that BYU had a lot of turnovers to start the game, but Iowa State took full advantage of that and really jumped out on them. I don't think Memphis is going to have a lot of turnovers to start. At least, you know, I hope it's not deja vu. But I think Iowa State, they kind of played this kind of power run. Um, you know, Memphis was good in the AAC. I think going up, up against a Big 12 opponent like this, I like Iowa State over Memphis. 8 p.m. ESPN, the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic from AT&T Stadium in Arlington. Number nine, Missouri at two and a half versus the Ohio State University, seventh ranked. I'll take Ohio State plus two and a half over Missouri. This has been a great season for Missouri. And as I've said, there's nowhere to go but up for them. So Drinkwitz finally figured this out because for a while, (laughs) you know, it wasn't looking good for Coach Drinkwitz kind of getting this Missouri team kind of in the conversation they're in the conversation now the question is will they be in the conversation next season so i don't know who they got coming back it'll be interesting to kind of look at their team now and what they look like moving into the spring but if they happen to win this game this is definitely a big springboard for them because again 
not only think about who they got coming back, but the transfer portal heading to Columbia would be very, very appealing and inviting to potential transfers. Not to say it isn't, but getting a big win like this over an Ohio State team and then having to turn around and play in a much more competitive SEC next year and having some chances to rock the boat a little bit, I think would bode well for them. I think either way, they're going to potentially be, you know, good next season and possibly again, they were close to a couple upsets this year. But um I like um Ohio State in this one. Uh no quarterback. I still do I mean they have a quarterback, but McCord's gone. Um I think they've got enough in the tank to win this game at plus two and a half. Saturday, December 30th, noon, ESPN. So the second of what we call the New Year's Six, quote unquote, the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl from Atlanta on a Saturday. Couldn't we make this a two o'clock kickoff? I mean, this is kind of one of the big bowl games, a noon kickoff. Noon kickoffs for these big bowl games just seems not right to me, but Number 11, Ole Miss versus number 10, Penn State. Penn State are three-and-a-half-point favorites. I'll take the Nittany Lions. Remember, now, again, I don't know if Manny Diaz. I think Manny Diaz might be gone, but this is one of the top defenses in the country. Um, They got to go against that Lane Kiffin offense. I think they've got enough to slow them down. I think Penn State wins this game um, over Ole Miss. It might be closer than three-and-a-half. The Capital One Orange Bowl, 4 p.m. ESPN from Miami Gardens, what I like to call the Angry Bowl. Number eight, I'm sorry, number six, Georgia versus number five, Florida State. So you got two mad teams. I think Florida State is probably going to be the madder team. Georgia are two touchdown favorites. I will take Georgia in this one. Don't be surprised if Florida, I mean, Florida State is going to make this a game, but I think Georgia wins this. I'm not going to say comfortably because, like I said, I think. Florida State's going to come into this game with a chip on their shoulder, and rightfully so. They should. But as I started looking at the these matchups more, I'm going, I don't know. I mean, Georgia is still relatively intact. I don't think what they lost, Vandergriff, the backup, they still, their guys are still playing. I don't know if there are any opt-outs for this game. Probably not a lot because you got a lot of guys who want to play. And if there are opt-outs, you got guys who get the opportunity to kind of step in establish themselves for next season but they definitely want to make a statement in this game i'll take georgia i think it 14 sounds right it could be a little closer than 14 let's move to january 1st 2024 the verbo fiesta bowl 1 p.m on espn i mean again two o'clock guys two two o'clock does exist on a clock let's just say number 25, number 23, rather, number 23, Liberty versus number eight, Oregon. Oregon are 17 and a half point favorites. I think Liberty makes this interesting, but Oregon wins the game because as of right now, again, I I haven't really been up on all the opt outs. I don't know if Bo Nix is opting out. (laughs) I mean, I have a feeling he's not, but regardless, I think Oregon is going to show out this game. Again, Liberty's not terrible. Jamie Chadwell's got them undefeated up until now, but I think they take their first loss against Oregon. Now, on the flip side of this, if Liberty manages to beat Oregon, this is going to be a team to watch for next season because, again, another team I'd like to see, okay, who's coming back, and, of course, who can they attract in the transfer portal? And what do they, what does their recruiting look like? Because, essentially, 
if Liberty pulls this off, this will be huge. And since they're number 23, beating the eighth-ranked team in the nation that has, and Oregon has, what, two losses, if I recall correct. No, yeah, Oregon has two losses. Liberty's undefeated. You can expect Liberty's going to get a big push up in the final poll at the end of the season. But I'll take Oregon at 17 and a half. So one game I'm not going to call, the Citrus Bowl, 1 p.m. on ABC. Uh, number 17, Iowa versus number 21, Tennessee. Iowa, one ten games, Tennessee, Eight and four are nine-point favorites in this game. So here's I'm, I'm just going to give you a key. This is a game you might want to maybe keep in the back of your mind. You might want to just peek in on it from time to time. This is going to go one of two ways. If Iowa manages to find some offense, this is going to be interesting because, remember, Iowa has a pretty good defense as well. Now, if it goes south and Iowa can't score – they may get smashed or conversely, it'll be kind of sort of an ugly, low scoring affair, which I don't see with Tennessee. So there's one of two ways this is going to go. Either Iowa keeps this interesting and finds enough offense to win or they keep it close, but they kind of get smashed. Maybe not as bad. Well, they got beat 26 nothing in the Big Ten championship. Mm, I don't know. This could. Yeah, this. Could, yeah. Let's just say this. It's either going to I was going to make it a game or it's going to be ugly. There's kind of no in between here thinking about kind of kind of how Iowa's offense has been. And if you look at Iowa's offense, they start off the season pretty good. They were scoring what they were averaging. I say one game they had the first game they had 42 points. 20, I mean, they were probably averaging about 30 points a game. Then that number just crept down into Big Ten play. And again, what happened? I mean, it, it's just hard to say how you go from averaging, I think, somewhere around 30 points the first three or four games to averaging maybe probably half that or a little more than half. So, again, there's your in-between. So keep an eye on the Citrus Bowl. Again, it's either going to be interesting or it's going to be super ugly uh, for Tennessee or in favor of Tennessee. Let's move over to the CFP semifinals, 5 p.m. ESPN from the venerable Rose Bowl in Pasadena, the Rose Bowl presented by Prudential, number four, Alabama versus number one, Michigan, Michigan, a one point favorites. I'm going to take Michigan close. This will be a shootout. I think this will be a defensive game. I think one or two plays is going to push this game in either direction. I'll take Michigan over Alabama, 845 p.m. from New Orleans, the Caesars Superdome. 8.45 ESPN, they all say Sugar Bowl. Number three, Texas, four-point favorites versus number two, Washington. I'll take Texas close over Washington. I think, again, defense is going to be the, the thing here. Now, mind you, you've got Michael Penix Jr. who can do a lot of things, but I feel like Texas defensively, I think if they can kind of keep Penix kind of a little bit less mobile, and force him to throw and cover and put pressure because, again, there's a lot of things they got to do. They got to kind of keep him contained but make him throw the ball, do things without doing, you know, using his legs. I think Texas defensively has enough to beat Washington. I'll take Texas over Washington. So, for me, I, I'm never going to – I never say here's what's going to happen in the – final between the teams I pick. I don't think I ever do that. I just give you this, who I think is going to be in the semifinals. And then when we come back for season five, I'll say, okay, 
here's what we got in the CFP finals. We'll recap the semifinals and then we'll kind of get on to the final and I'll make a prediction based on that because, you know, Michigan, Texas, I mean, I don't want to project too far, but you, you get the idea. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to dubs and L's. And really, um, wow, I've got a laundry list of L's today. I got one dub, a laundry list of L's. So let's just get the L's out of the way because they're all pretty terrible. Um, Let's start with college football. The attorney, okay, so two things. The latest thing is the the attorney general of Florida is going to investigate Florida State's exclusion from the CFP. Rick Scott, their senator, and I think he might be the senior senator, has written a letter, a sternly worded letter. (laughs) I'm wagging my finger as I say that. A sternly worded letter to the CFP committee telling him, telling them in so many words how he doesn't like how Florida State, I'm still wagging my finger, how Florida State should not have been excluded. And to that, I say no one cares. Um, <laughs> uh, when I tweeted that out, I, I someone responded. They said Boo Corrigan is probably using that letter as toilet paper, as he should, because guess what, Rick Scott? Nobody cares what you think. Okay, you've got bigger problems to deal with. You're in Washington to legislate for the people, not be concerned about what the CFP does. Same thing with Florida's AG. Florida has a lot of problems. They tend to focus on the the wrong dumb things. So why don't we get back to legislating and doing things for everybody instead of one group of people who want to control everybody else? So, again, just this whole again, I don't disagree. I think Florida State should be in it. But come on, it's done. A sternly worded letter is not going to get you what you want. At this point, it's done. They're going to go. They're literally going to play a home game in Miami. So. They're getting ready for it. Again, it's in the back of their minds. They should be angry, upset, pissed off. They should be all those things, totally. But a sternly worded letter is not going to win you the battle. So to Florida's attorney general, what are you investigating exactly? Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. Um, Draymond Green, good God. The only thing I'm going to say about this, if you haven't seen what he did lately, so he... Uh, punch Yurkic in the face, and he's swearing out that the way he did it, he was trying to move his move himself in order to create contact to get a foul. He turns around and punches Yurkic in the face, and at this point, the NBA he needs to sit the rest of the season. So we're waiting currently right now to see what the NBA is going to do to him. Last time when he uh, choked out Rudy Gobert, he got five games, which I'm going, you're choking this guy out. You should have got 10 games. This time, the NBA needs to sit him for the rest of the season. I mean, this is ridiculous. It's like, really? This is what we're doing? He he half apologized, which I'm going, regardless, the apology was trash. I'm not buying it. I mean, it's like, it looks like he turned around and kind of flung himself. Who turns around and flings himself with an open fist? Now, if you turn around and hit him with your hand, I get it. A closed fist, not open fist, a closed fist. You turn around with a closed fist and hit this guy in the face and it's an accident. I'm not, I, I think the vast majority of folks who've seen the tape are not buying it. NBA, sit this guy out. He's, yeah, it's just, it's just getting ridiculous. And... Is he going to learn a lesson from it? Not really. I mean, 
They can take all the money from him. They can suspend him the rest of the season. He'll find some way to act like a victim. He'll find, he'll he'll moan about it. He'll he'll you know he'll appeal it. But the NBA needs to take some action because Draymond's is out of control. He I think this might be his third suspension this year, and that ties uh, a record. He has a history. Do something about this NBA. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, I had Adam Silver, speaking of the NBA, I had Adam Silver down here, and he, I forget what he was talking about. They, he was being interviewed, and he compared himself to to what uh, uh, Henry Kissinger, which I'm going, dude, you clearly have no idea history or how this works. So just, 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 this is the opportune time to say, just keep the conversation to the vein of sports because don't compare yourself to Kissinger. That that's a terrible analogy. I don't care what you're talking about. Um, but you know, and then of course there's the Josh Giddy thing, which, you know, silver is constantly in my mind in, you know, I always say there's the race to the bottom to who can be the worst commissioner in sports. I mean, right now, Gary Bettman is kind of, He's there, but lately he the NHL hasn't done anything super dumb. Roger Goodell and him right now are neck and neck. And right now, I think Goodell is slightly in the lead for the worst commissioner in sports. Um, Rob Manfred right now, he's probably top of the list as I'm not doing anything yet, but I can't say that I'm the worst. So again, uh, Adam Silver, oh God, just 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 get the Draymond Green thing right do that much for us and then maybe you might distance yourself a little bit from Roger Goodell who I believe and still will say is is probably overall the worst sports commissioner in the country um oh here we go the Caps and the Wizards so it's now official Ted Leonsis is moving the Caps and the Wizards to Virginia so I think they're going to be somewhere around Potomac Yard so I'm assuming what's going to happen is they are going to get a lot of money I think there's probably some state money. They're going to build a facility for them, for the Caps and the um, Wizards to play in Virginia. So D.C. made a $500 million counter offer in the 11th hour to try to keep uh, the teams in D.C. Um, yeah, anytime anybody gives Glenn Youngkin, who I call Fleece Vest Mussolini, any type of shine, clearly I feel like this is more than just about money. This is definitely about politics um terrible move so now the now the move is they're going to move the mystics back to the capital center uh, capital one center which i think is dumb because they just built the entertainment sports arena for the mystics and i think the go-go play there as well so moving the mystics back to the capital capital one center why i mean again the mystics they're i think the, the entertainment sports arena is the perfect venue. Moving them back to a bigger venue doesn't make a lick of sense. But, uh, you know, again, as we always say, money talks, baloney walks. And it's unfortunate because, you know, this is kind of Youngkin's play to kind of make himself look good because he took a beating in the elections last month in Virginia. So he lost the entire General Assembly, which, ladies and gentlemen, to my to the Commonwealth, my home. Thank you very much. Thank you for having some sense and at least keeping some power out of this guy's hands. At least the legislature is safe from the the doings of this guy. 
but yeah, this is just his way of getting some favor back um, uh, for, for, for himself because I don't know who this benefits. It definitely doesn't benefit the people of D.C. because now the whole gallery place area, you know, the whole area where the Capital One Center is, I mean, the plan at least in the counteroffer was to kind of rehabilitate the area, bring in more, um, you know, bring in more business, this, that, and the third. And sadly, it's too little too late. So now what does this do for D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser? Uh, I, I, this, this It's not good. It's not good. But, um, yeah, um, Leonsis, yeah, terrible move. Um, I, I think this was very planned, political, and, yeah, I, I think – DC fans, I think, lose out tremendously. Um, now, again, you can say, well, fans who live in Virginia, they've got it. You know, they've got full reign to see these teams, not to say the Wizards are doing anything of note, but, you know, are DC fans going to go over to Virginia? Mm, who knows? I think the rift between DC and Virginia just got bigger with this move, and it's unfortunate. My dub this week goes out to uh, the women's basketball team from the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff and their head coach, Don Thornton. So they had a big win this past week against Arkansas. They've never beaten Arkansas, and they did it this week. They've got a really fantastic young lady playing, and I forget her last name, Zay. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sorry I had it. And I can't find it, but she is amazing. They've really got a really good team this year. And Coach Thornton has really been building this team for a number of years. And they've kind of been, you know, on the cusp. But this year, with that win, it just feels like it's going to get that much more special for this program. But I just wanted to shout out Coach Thornton and that team because that was a big win. I mean, uh, you know, Arkansas is usually in the conversation in the SEC and um, are they in the conversation this year? I don't know because, you know, South Carolina is doing their thing. Tennessee is Tennessee's up and down again. Um, and then, of course, you know, LSU is doing what LSU does. But, again, they're having a lot of internal, you know, issues personnel-wise. They're getting it done on the court. But all the turmoil, you know, the Angel Reese situation, Kateri Poole leaving, they have injury. There's just so much going on with that program that, you know, you, you you know that they're going to be ready to play. But the question is, you know, what does this do for this program over the long haul? That's kind of the, the, the big question that I see. But, um, you know, Missouri, they're picking up a little bit. But, you know, will they be able to sustain over the season? It's hard to say. But Arkansas over the last few years is usually in the conversation. But, you know, this year seems like they're – you know, not really going to, I mean, it, conference play is different, but again, to get a big win like this for Pine Bluff, I mean, um, just great stuff. You'll love to see it. And congratulations to them onward and upward for um, that team and that squad. And Dawn Thornton, she is a, a, a coach definitely on the rise, been on the rise, but, um, you know, she definitely, um, is somebody who is really someone you need to watch. If you if you have if you're not aware of her and what she's been doing, you definitely need to pay attention now. All right, everybody. With that, I leave you. So almost an hour and a half, but we, we got through it together. And I appreciate you being here and listening. And I thank you. And next week we're gonna end season four. 
Um, so no show on Friday. At least that's the plan right now. Yeah, no show on Friday, but we'll get back to you next week. We'll recap everything. We'll get you ready for whatever's coming, and we'll recap uh, the season. We'll recap the year in sports. And um, tell me, so I'm going to put up a, a couple polls here, but tell me, who do you think is the most, has been the most impactful person in sports in 2023? So I want to ask you to kind of give me some thoughts on that. And, you know, I'll put, put on my Twitter, my Instagram, and let me know. And um, if I get enough responses, I'll probably um, make that person or persons or team um, my sports figure of the year, as I do every at the end of every season. But until then, I appreciate you listening. Make sure you continue to like, subscribe, uh, give me a five-star rating if you can, tell folks about the show. The emails in the show notes, please email me with questions, concerns, or comments. Um, again, be nice. <laughs> um, and as I always end my show, make sure you continue to mask up, stay healthy. Uh, the holidays are coming. We want you here to celebrate or to enjoy the time off. I know some people don't necessarily celebrate Christmas, but it's okay regardless. And also, as I leave, I also remember, I also remind you, rather, to remember to drink your water and mind the business that pays you. Peace. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Sports Wagon Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and tell a friend about the show. You can also send me a voicemail or send me a message on Twitter or Instagram at It's Uncle Dub. That's I-T-S-U-N-C-L-E underscore D-U-B. Also, please consider supporting the podcast at buymeacoffee.com backslash sportswagonpod. I really appreciate your support. Thank you.